Aftermath is brought to you by Art of Problem Solving, where we develop educational resources for motivated students, including textbooks, an online school, in-person learning centers, and a variety of online applications. We build the tools we wish we had when we were students. Welcome to Aftermath, where we talk to fascinating people in and around the STEM world about where they've been, where they are now, and how their passion for math helped them get there. I'm your host, Richard Russick. My guest today is Max Nova, founder of Sylvia Terra, which applies new mathematical techniques to a very old school problem, managing forests. Max will talk about his memories attending prestigious summer programs like MathPath and RSI before going on to study computer science at Yale. You'll hear about how he discovered the surprising applications that math has to forestry and how this wound up leading him down an unexpected career path. You'll also learn about what it's like creating the data and analytics that are used in forest management, find out where Max sees the field heading in the future, and discover why being a voracious reader can help make you better at networking. Welcome to the show, Max. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, before we get talking about trees, let's talk about your roots, which look a lot like mine. We both attended middle school and high school in states that aren't always known as mathematical hotbeds. I was in Tennessee and Alabama, you in Kentucky. Now, neither one of us has an accent that reveals those histories. My dad was in the Navy until I was eight or nine. What's your excuse? <laughs> yeah, so actually gr growing up, I, I, I probably sounded a little bit more like this. You know, it probably mm -hmm. wasn't that bad, but uh, it actually... Um, is sort of a funny story that has to do with the, the very first time I went out of state, which was to go to a, a summer math program called MathPath, which you, you probably know about, right? Yeah, Richard? so you're, you're middle school then? Yeah, you know, that must have been the, the summer after my seventh grade year, you know, and I, I guess I had probably gone out of state before on, you know, vacation down to Florida or something, but it, yeah, this was my first time ever going away from home. And, um, you know, I, I just remember my parents sort of dragged me off to to math camp over the summer, kicking and screaming. You know, that, at the time, that was not my my idea of a uh, a summer well spent. And it was out in uh, South Dakota, I think. It was either the first or the second time they had ever had math path, and you know, they wanted to make sure they got a location where you you couldn't run away. Right. So, no. <laughs> right. Something more rural than Kentucky, even. Yeah. Um, so but, what what made your parents think of that? Uh, you know, I. I actually don't even really quite remember, you know, I had been doing math counts um, in middle school and, uh, you know, I had been doing an okay job at that. And I guess, um, yeah, that they had, they had wanted me to go, um, yeah, try, try to do some more math somewhere. But so I showed up at this camp, you know, and, uh -huh. and people are making fun of me because I sound like a hillbilly <laughs> getting made fun of at math camp. You know, that's, uh -huh. that's pretty, that's, that's tough when you're experience. 13. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So I remember those, you know, and remember I'm seventh grade or something at this time. I come home at the end of that summer and I say, you know, this is never going to happen again. And so being in seventh grade, I, I ask myself, I say, you know, who's who's got a really cool voice? And uh, at the time I was I said, Keanu Reeves, that's oh, the guy. And so there's wow. this movie, Bill and Ted's Excellent uh, Adventure. Interesting and choice. I, yeah, yeah. Listen, I, the mistakes were made. But for a while, you know, it's not quite as bad as it used to be. But uh, yeah, back Back in uh, high school, I, I probably sounded a lot like this. But anyway, <laughs> so I've backed off that a little bit here. But yeah, yeah. math changing my life. There right you there. go. There you go. So you go to math camp and you liked it enough to go again? Is that is that right? Yeah. 
Well, you know, so the thing was, is that first summer of MathPath was actually really tough for me. You know, not only had had I sort of gone away from home or anything, but I, I was used to sort of being a big deal, you know, in, in Kentucky. And then suddenly I show up, uh, you know, to this math, math camp and people are just running circles around me. Yeah, and that that was that was a really sort of eye-opening experience for me, and I I remember just barely being able to keep afloat basically that first summer. It was uh, it was a real uh, learning experience. Yeah, for sure. that that was exactly my experience the first year I went to the Math Olympiad program. Um, after getting through the USAMO, I get invited to the Math Olympiad program. For those listeners who aren't familiar with it, it's the it's the training program for ultimately the U.S. team in high school. And I got there my sophomore year, and I'm coming out of Alabama, never met anybody who's been to this thing. I was quite sure I was the smartest person in the world. <laughs> right. And it was very clear right away uh, that that assumption was quite incorrect. I was there for five weeks. We had a ton of practice tests. Uh, I probably saw 60 or 70 practice problems. Did not get a single one correct. Uh, so it was quite clear where I stood on the pecking order. But you came back. So how, yeah. did, that, how did that happen? Well, you know, so so that first summer, there was uh, one of the the professors there, Al Lippert, really spent a lot of time. He he was sort of responsible for the uh, the not quite as advanced kids uh, at that that camp, and he I just remember spending a lot of time with him, going over you know how to think about these different types of problems, how to approach them, and you know this thing that had sort of been impossible and, and magic over the course of that summer. You know, I started to be able to actually make some some progress. Uh, towards solving uh, some of these more difficult math problems. And actually, I mean, that, you know, then I went back to Kentucky at the end of that summer, uh, made it onto the the state math counts team, you know, so I was one of the top four in the state. On a, I came in fourth, but it was a three-way tie for <laughs> second. And uh, yeah, and so, so went to nationals and then, you know, came back that yeah. that next summer and, uh, you know, just had, had a lot more confidence, you know, not that I was the smartest kid at the camp or anything, but that I could actually make progress on solving uh yeah. yeah, some of these tough math problems. That's fantastic. That took me two years at MOP. So I did, my second year experience was the same as my first, but not until <laughs> my third year did I make the transition you made uh, a lot more quickly than I did. So you get to high school. Do you stay with math? Do you make a transition away? Yeah, well, so, you know, I had, um, I, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, actually. And, you know, my dad was a doctor and sort of like everybody at the time, you know, I thought I wanted to be pre-med going into college and all that. And so I started doing um, both, both sort of more scientific research and then a lot more computer science-oriented type things. And then, so from there, you start doing research, you start doing computer science, um, you end up going to RSI. Yep. Is that you? Did you you went through science through computer science? What no, was your... actually, yeah. So so. Uh, one, one of the key moments of my life uh, I'll always remember is, uh, so I went to DuPont Manual High School in Louisville, which is okay. is sort of unique in Louisville because it's a magnet math science school. It's the only one in the uh, in the city. And, you know, you sort of have to apply to get in. And it's, uh, you know, it's sort of a big, um, yeah, it's, it's a big thing in Louisville. And so, you know, it's this big public school right in the middle of downtown Louisville. And my freshman year, you know, this was sort of a change for me because I had come from uh, sort of a small private school and middle school. And uh, there was a biology class that everybody in the math science program had to take their freshman year. And at the end of that, uh, I guess it was spring of freshman year, the uh, uh, Mrs. Fries, who was our, our biology teacher, she says, you know, hey, there's this program over the summer 
to do research at the cancer center here in Louisville and you have to sp you can't go on vacation at all because they want a full commitment from you all summer. You're going to spend all summer working on research in a lab. Is anybody interested in doing this? And I, you know, I put my hand right up. I'm the guy who used to go into math camp over yeah. the summer. I remember looking around. I'm the only one I'm looking <laughs> like an idiot there. I was the only one with my hand up. And I'll tell you, man, that changed my life right there is put my hand up. You know, so I, I think I was the only freshman that they they accepted into that program. Uh, and they put me in a lab doing biocompatibility assays for this retinal prosthetic project. And so I did that the summer after my freshman year and the summer after my sophomore year. And then when it came time to apply for RSI, uh, you know, which is this big national, uh, you know, really competitive research thing, I was able to apply with, you know, already two summers of doing real research. Right under my belt and that made a, a big difference. I think I think it didn't hurt that I was from Kentucky, you know, they have a little <laughs> bit of a geographic diversity yeah, I will, going on there too. I will note that you haven't entirely lost the accent when I yeah, mentioned well, we have well, a, Yeah, I've sort of put it back on there, yeah. you know, I'm in forestry. So, you know, it's much better to have a, a southern yeah. accent than to sound like Keanu Reed. Well, I also, our, our, the head of our online schools from Kentucky and I mentioned that I was gonna be talking to someone today from Louisville. And he said, oh, you're pronouncing it exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right, there you go. And that is what he told me. Uh, so, so you, you really you identify this moment when you raise your hand. You're, you're saying you're you're going out there and saying I'm going to try that as yep. a critical moment for you. Uh, what was it at that 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 those summer those two summers that you learned? Like, was there someone there that was an important mentor, teachers, or or was it just the act of I'm going to go try that thing? Uh, well, so for over, over the research, it was, uh, you know, I certainly had, had great mentorship in the lab, you know, from the, the head of the lab and then some of the graduate uh, researchers that were in that lab spent a lot of time sort of getting me up to speed. Uh, but actually, probably the, the best mentorship I got in high school was from a computer science professor that or a teacher, I guess, that I had at the time, um, Todd O'Brien. And the way I'm trying to remember exactly how this worked, but it was I think I had taken like you had to take a health education class or something. And so I had done that over the summer before go starting high school. And so I had an empty slot open the freshman spring, I guess. And so I you know, thought I had, was interested in doing more advanced math stuff. And I, I met uh, or actually, I guess this guy had been the, the coach of the quiz bowl team. Uh, so I had been on the quiz bowl team and he said, well, you know what? Instead of doing a, a math thing, why don't you take my um, – my sophomore junior level computer pro intro to computer programming class. And I said, well, I haven't taken the first semester. And he's like, well, just do all this reading over the next two weeks and then uh, you can start. And so he actually, I, I ended up taking classes with him then all four years. And he, he really helped me uh, really get into computer science stuff, doing a lot of web programming stuff, learning about databases and servers and Python and all this type of stuff. Uh, at a very early age, and that's, I mean, that's been foundational, actually, for everything that I've done ever since, is all that stuff that I, I learned in high school, thanks okay. to uh, some of the mentorship I got there. Okay, cool. I was told to ask you about Taco Bell. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, so actually, that, that's another thing. So I was on the, the math team back in high uh -huh. school, and I remember showing up as a freshman, and, you know, I guess it was the American AMC, is that is that okay. still a thing? That, no. Yeah, yeah, so anyway, so I was on the math team, and, and there was this senior guy, Albert Yu, who, you know, he, he was just, a, you know, leagues ahead of everybody else as far as all, all the math stuff. And for some reason, he, you know, he decided that, you know, I, I had the potential to learn some of this stuff and that I really, you know, to, to help the math team succeed, I really needed to learn calculus freshman year. And 
I think probably once a week, we would go over to this this weird little, we had a combination Taco Bell pizza hut right across the street from our high school. And he would sit down there for like, you know, an hour or two with me once a week after school. And and he just had such an intuitive understanding of, of calculus and sort of how to think about all these things. And, you know, so he, he dramatically sped up sort of my entire mathematical development in, in high school by, by really sort of walking me through how and, to. And he was two or three years older than you were? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Why do you think he picked you out? Or did you go you know, seek him out? You know, I, I think it was, that, that is a good question. You know, I think part of it was, I, I mean, I had been putting the work in, right? You know, I'd been going to these math camps. I'd been been trying really hard. I think it was probably, you know, the the high score, you know, from my freshman year, I guess, or something. And he's trying to figure out, you know, who's going to keep, you know, keep up the momentum with the team um, af- after he'd left. But, you know, I, I think it was a combination of him just being a, a really good guy, but then also, you know, me having put in the work and, right. and you know, working hard. So you work hard enough to get into RSI. I'd like you first to talk a bit about what RSI is so our listeners understand uh, it's it's a big deal. We have several RSI alums here in the building at, at AOPS. Um, so talk a little bit about that and then talk about like what you did at RSI, what was the most valuable part of RSI. Yeah, sure. So the... Um... So our RSI was actually originally the Rickover Science Institute. Uh, so Admiral Rickover was the father of the nuclear navy, and uh, you know he he thought that America was falling behind in global competitiveness in math and science, and that we we needed to you know step up and do something about it. Yeah. And so uh, now I think they renamed it to the Research Science Institute. So it's yes. the you know it's the same thing. But the so nominally what's supposed to happen is that they take the 50 sort of top U.S. math science students, and then 25 to 30 internationals. And they bring them together summer after your junior year of high school, and you live on MIT's campus. And it's, it's this incredible experience because you're living in a college dorm. They they set you up uh, to do research in a lab at Harvard or MIT or BU or you know one of these great Boston universities. And you spend six weeks in like just a extremely intense uh, environment where you actually do a full research project from start to finish, including you know writing the paper, doing the presentation, everything. And it's free, uh, right? The whole thing yeah. is free. Yeah, the so whole, it's the whole super thing competitive is, to get in. Oh yeah, yeah, it, it's it's incredibly. It's probably harder to get into RSI than it is to get into Harvard or something. And in fact, actually, you know, most of the the people that go to RSI end up going to places like MIT or Harvard. I was sort of the odd guy out going to Yale, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's just really incredible academic environment. And you know, and it, it was sort of like math camp all over again. Yeah, I mean, I was used to it by now. Yeah, I, I sort of knew I was going to show up and be surrounded by a bunch of people that were way smarter than me. You know, and actually RSI is actually, you know, I, I ended up going to Yale for college and I've never felt more sort of like out of my league than I did at RSI. You know, going, going to Yale after that was like, OK, well, I can I can work with this. Yeah, it was the same experience I had coming out of MOP. You know, I get, I get yep. to Princeton. I'm like. Oh wait a second! <laughs> this yeah, this isn't so I bad. Can, I can compete on this level. I, I've been I've been through Hell Week at RSI. You know, yeah. I can I can do this. Yeah. So. so what was the best part of RSI? Well, so so uh, you know they they pair you up and I, I learned like lots of science things at, at RSI. But the biggest difference in my my life is actually my lab partner was the uh, one of the international students from Sweden. And over the course of the summer, we ended up falling in love, and we're married now. We've been married four years. Outstanding, so, outstanding. Yeah, you, you know, you find true love at nerd camp, and you just you <laughs> hold on. That's yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's true. That's I mean, that's basically the way I feel about college. By far, the most yeah. valuable thing I got out of college. <laughs> right. Uh, so so moving on to college uh, now, I'd like to hear a little bit more about your time 
at Yale in computer science. In particular, I read a piece by you about what you perceived to be missing in Yale's computer science right. education. And from what we've seen when we're hiring, it's a complaint that could be made about a lot of schools. If you could talk yeah. a bit about that. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, I, I think almost nobody does does computer science education really well in, in American universities. But the uh, the I think the piece you're talking, there's a Yale Daily News piece uh -huh. that, yeah, that, that was my, my senior year. I decided to, you know, just sort of roll the grenade and then walk <laughs> away. And, you know, I think that actually caused a lot of changes at, you know, Yale. I mean, Yale as a university, I think for a long time has been struggling to figure out sort of where does it fit in sort of the math science yeah. zone. And, and actually, that was one of the reasons why I ended up going to Yale is because I felt like if I went to a place like M MIT or Harvard, you know, I'd just be sort of another fish in the sea. And I could go to a place like Yale. And, and the beauty of, of a place like Yale is that uh, people aren't really one dimensional. You know, I, I feel like a lot of times you can sort of get locked into like just going really, really deep into a particular subfield of math or something. You know, and, and at Yale, I ended up doing computer science and forestry. You know, or there's a lot of people that end up doing computer science and politics or computer science and art or all these different things. And so, uh, you know, there's so many permutations that actually there's there's way less competition in those type of things. You know, and so it actually ended up being a great experience for me. So what was this grenade that you rolled before you walked away? Oh, well, it was that editorial that basically says, you know, Yale needs to step up because uh, there it has a computer science program. And there's, you know, I, w I think my year there were maybe like eight people out of a student body of, I don't know, Yale's probably like a thousand uh, kids a year that graduate. Uh, and there's an intro class that, you know, maybe had 50 or so um, uh, students that would go through it. But, it, you know, it's sort of very theoretical. And the reality is like most people at Yale are not going to end up being computer scientists. But being able to, to program and sort of understand what's going on and not have that be magic is so important in in 2018 uh you know i think it's something that everybody needs to learn and and you know just like yale makes everybody take an english class because we think that you know communicating through through english and being able to express your thoughts clearly and and uh, make a coherent argument is an important skill that everybody should have i think in in many respects being able to talk to computers sort of you know express your thoughts clearly you know tell a computer what to do do that at scale uh analyze data you know all, all these things are, are super important and i felt like the university just did not have the infrastructure set up to to be servicing the student body in in a way that was gonna make a difference in their lives and so actually after that they they sort they partnered with harvard which runs this uh, cs50 class that's online and you can take it for free and um, they basically created a Yale version of that. And I think it's now probably the most popular class at Yale, I, maybe behind Econ 101 or something. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's right, you know, hundreds of people take this class every year now. And I think it's starting to really change the culture at Yale, which is, is exciting. That is cool. So this is focusing more on practical how-to program as opposed to the theoretical computer science. Yeah. Well, you know, and I mean, it's not entirely fair. I mean, there's, there's still theory aspect. I mean, that's, that's the beauty of it, right? Like it's all sort of, it's all sort of the same thing, but when you, when you have a course that's structured around having people do projects, you know, the theory will come as you do the, the practical things. It's just, it's tough to get people motivated when you're, you know, talking about sort of abstract data structures or, you know, algorithm type stuff. And the, the way to learn, I think, computer science stuff is just to have a project. And, you know, as, as you try to, build complexity into that project, you're sort of forced to learn all these new things as you go along. Cool. So somehow you got from computer science to forestry. <laughs> right. now, now, typically the story goes, uh, you finish college and then you start a career. Didn't quite happen that way for you. So give us give us the origin, the origin story. 
Sure. Yeah. So, you know, going into college, I, you know, I'd done all this research in, in high school and at RSI and sort of the more medical field. And I, at the time going into Yale, I, I thought, you know, I am going to be an interventional radiologist and I have the next like 15 years of my formal education mapped out. Uh, and so step one, you know, and, and I, my, my whole philosophy on life is to try to de-risk things as, as quickly as possible. You know, what small experiment can I run today to get a sense for is this even the right direction? And so I took a uh, emergency medical technician class, which actually you didn't even get Yale credit for or anything. It was sort of an outside thing. But the capstone of that is they have you spend, uh, I think it's like a week in the Yale New Haven emergency room. And so, you know, at the end of this class, I did that. And yeah, and I mean, that that was another, you know, in terms of eye-opening experiences, you know, it was just, it was really... I hadn't understood until that just, you know, how real, you know, people suffering was. And you have a lot of people that are just chronically in there. And I mean, it was sad. It was like just a viscerally sad and sort of uh, depressing experience. And I thought, you know, man, I, this could be what I do every day for the rest of my life. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> I just sort of snapped and I was like, or I could do literally anything else. Yeah. And I was like, you know, I mean, cause it's, it's a super important work and, and you're really helping people as a doctor, you know, my dad's a doctor and I, I've got a lot of respect for that, but I just, you know, on the day to day basis, I was like, man, I, I don't know if I can handle this. And yeah, so that, you know, you so there I was, there I was that at the end of freshman year, my, my life plan suddenly derailed. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I was like, well, what do I do now? And, and I had heard that the forestry school threw pretty good parties. You know, the, the Yale forestry school is sort of notorious for that, you know, having these, these great parties and the, the thank God I'm a forester every Friday. But the uh, and so I, I basically just applied to sort of a random job at the School of Forestry for an internship over the summer doing some web programming thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, the lab I ended up in, one of the guys was Zach Parasa, who's my co-founder and, and our president here at Sylvia Terra. And, uh, you know, he was a master's student there and he had essentially figured out how to do all the satellite stuff. Do all the satellites. This is doing all the imagery for forests yeah. and such. And that got you, that got you hooked. Did you do any of this? I'd like you to talk a little bit more about this de-risking thing that you mentioned. Did you do any de-risking here or was it just, you were yeah. just. Oh yeah, you know, totally. I mean, that, that's been our, our whole philosophy doing this, this company. And, you know, so, and actually that, that was part of my view at that point, you know, I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to be a, a doctor. Uh, it was, I guess, 2009, probably okay. around then, you know, so, you know, startups were sort of a hot thing and, you know, but, the, but it's scary, you know, and there's a big difference between having a startup, you know, that you try to start after college or in your senior year or something where you say, man, I have no idea if this is going to work. Cause I mean, that's the reality is you never yeah. know if any of these startup things is going to work. And, uh, it's tough to go on when all your friends are getting, you know, offers from Goldman Sachs or some like big consulting, yeah. you know, like the alternative is looks very comfortable and very secure and very easy. But when you start your freshman year, uh, which I did, you know, you know, you've got three more years of a roof over your head and food on the table and no one's expecting you to make any money. And so it, by the time I graduated, actually, Sylvia Terra, you know, we had paying clients. We were making enough money to pay, you know, sort of small salaries for ourselves. And, and we knew that we could actually make something and sell it to people and get real dollars back. That's interesting, because one of the questions I was going to ask you is how you had the guts to stay with it, because we started, you know, I started the Mandelbrot competition at exactly the same point you started in, in my college career that yep. you started. Uh, Sylvia Terra was right after freshman year, but we didn't get to the point of writing the books, Shandor and I didn't, until I was finishing my senior year, and it's that point that Shandor and I started talking about forming a company. Yeah, but, that's scary, man. Yeah, but there was no internet for one. But for two, is exactly the dynamic you were talking about. Had we been still first or second year in college, we might have stuck with it. 
but I didn't have the guts to stay with it. You know, I'm out of college now. I'm married. I, mm-hmm. you know, I've got rent to pay. Yep. Uh, so I bailed and went, went into the financial world and he would eventually go as well. He's still there. Uh, I came back to our original vision um, 10 years later. So you, you had the guts to stay with it by giving yourself a bit more of a ramp, but how did you build that ramp? How'd you get started? Yeah. How'd you get going? Well, so, so one of the things, I don't know if you can, can tell this about me in the interview, but I have essentially no shame. Like I will pick <laughs> up the phone and call anybody and that's, that's what you gotta do, right? Like you can, you can build these castles in the sky, you know, in the clouds, but they don't actually mean anything until you make dollars. That's what I always tell our employees or tell other people trying to start a company is the only thing real is somebody giving you a dollar. And so your only mission right now is, you know, by the end of the week, can you build something that has some approximation of what you believe your ultimate value proposition is that will get someone to give you a dollar now? So that no shame thing, is that natural or did you <laughs> teach yourself that? I, I, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a little bit natural, but, you know, it's also, I think, actually, you know, going to these summer camps, you know, and it's like doing that summer after summer where you get plopped into some place you've never been before with a bunch yeah. of people that you have no idea. And it's like, OK, this is your next eight weeks. Good yeah. luck. Yeah, this was, I guess, uh, me as a little kid with my dad in the Navy moving all over the place and yep. got comfortable with the, finding my way in new places pretty quickly. Interesting. So build the ramp for me. How'd you do it? Oh, yeah. So um, so actually, so that that was um, summer after my freshman year, I guess, that I had met Zach and we, we started the company. And the, the way the company works is basically, you know, Zach is sort of the forestry and statistics guy. And I told him when we started this company, you know, because it was his idea. You know, I, I was not the one that came up with this. But I said, you know, you've got this idea. You're you're a genius guy when it comes to the stats and the forestry and all this stuff. But to build a company is going to involve a lot of pain and suffering and long hours. And so I said, I will work 18 hours a day until we make this thing a success. And so we started that company as as equal partners. And that's how we've we've kept it up up until now. But, you know, so it was literally he and I, uh, I guess it was that, you know, we, we just started calling people up. And actually, it was the uh, sophomore year. Then after that summer, there was a business plan competition at Yale called the Sabin Environmental Prize. Uh, and it was, I guess, the second year that they had been running that. And it was like this big $25,000 business plan prize. And I mean, $25,000 for us was yeah. was some insane amount of money. And we were like, man, if, if we can get this, it'll it'll really show that this is, uh, you know, that this idea has legs. And so, uh, you know, we, we wrote a big business plan for that, you know, I had to think through a lot of stuff, uh, you know, but we were, we were still calling forestry companies and stuff in the meantime, trying to like drum up some business. Uh, and we made it to the final round of this competition. Now, you know, I'll, I'll always remember my dad even flew up from Louisville to come watch us do our, our final presentation. And we ended up winning, which was this incredible awesome. thing for us. And, you know, basically as soon as we got that $25,000 check, we hopped in Zach's little Ford Ranger, you know, which is like basically the cheapest little, you know, pickup truck you can you can buy with his dog, you know, sitting in between us on the, the front seat. Yeah. And we just started driving south and we we were just calling people up. You know, it was the first time uh, they had just invented the the tethering where you could tether your laptop yeah. to your computer. You know, so I was literally like on Google trying to find like who owns over 50,000 acres in South Carolina, like, you know, as we're driving down the highway. And we would just call people up and get meetings and... Yeah, that was that was the first couple years of the company. It's just so, really hustling, getting out there. I'm I'm I have fifty thousand acres. No, I don't. But imagine yeah. I have fifty thousand acres. I've got this nineteen year old, twenty year old kid driving up right. with the dog and the Ford Ranger. What's your pitch? What are you doing yeah. for me? Well, so it, so it helped honestly that Zach Zach's probably seven or eight years older than I am, and he had worked in industry a little bit before he'd done his masters and stuff. And you know, 
we, we were usually able to get meetings over the phone where we would say, you know, hey, we're from Yale. We, you know, we just won this business plan competition thing. We, you know, I think we already had a, a anchor client that we had been working with, uh, you know, and so we had a little bit of credibility, but, you know, we would show up and people would say, listen, I get the story, you know, how do I know that this is actually going to work on my property? And so for the first couple of years, we actually ended up doing a lot of pilot projects where somebody would say, you know, here's some land that I've already collected measurements on. What do you guys think is there? And so, you know, it's not like we got a free pass on credibility because we were from Yale or because right. it looked like we were doing some high tech, you know, whatever thing. You know, people really put us through uh, uh, a lot of tests and we had to prove ourselves every step of the way. So what exactly are you doing? What are you doing for them? <laughs> right. So, <laughs> so the, the, you know, I always tell people we use satellites to count trees, which is, yeah. uh, you know, that's I mean, that's the idea in a nutshell. It's a, it's a big simplification of what's actually going on. The uh, what we do is for every basically one 20th acre area in a forest will tell you the diameter species and height of all the trees that are there. And we do that with a combination of satellite imagery and some field measurements uh, that, that we collect on the ground. Uh, and the, the question I always get from people is like, well, who cares, right? <laughs> it's like you, you, count, you count all the trees and like maybe you track deforestation or something. But the, the reality is it turns out that, you know, places like Yale, or big pension funds or endowments or all these people, you know, they they actually own timberland as an investment, just like any other type of, you know, people own farmland as an investment because, you know, trees grow and then eventually they're cut down and they're turned into, you know, furniture and napkins and paper towels and newspaper and all sorts of things. Uh, but to manage your forest, well, you know, it's just like any, any asset that you own. You have to have information about what's out there so that you can figure out how do I manage it. And in forestry, you're trying to figure out, you know, where do I cut? Where do I plant? Where do I build roads? You know, where do I fertilize? All, all these type of decisions that you have to have information uh, to make good decisions. So where is your, where? So you're you're using satellite imagery or yep. using drone technology, these sorts of things. Take lots of pictures. Yep. So are you do, collecting all that data? Are you getting it from somewhere else? Yeah. Or? So so actually, the one of the incredible things about 2018 is that. Uh, a lot of governments all over the U.S. have just made available their entire satellite imagery archives. Mm -hmm. And so in the U.S., the Landsat imagery archive, which, you know, the Landsat uh, mission has been up there since the 70s. You know, you can, you can get a couple images a year, every year going back to the 70s. And we, we actually tend to use um, uh, satellite imagery just because the scale of it so big, uh, the, the unit economics really makes sense compared to something like drones where you can maybe do okay. 20 acres at a time. But the... Um, yeah, there's an enormous amount of free data out there um, from both uh, spectral satellites and radar satellites and all, all sorts of different sensors that are up there. And so a big part of our pitch is just, you know, hey, there's all this free data out there. If you're not using it in your in your forest inventory process, then you're you're leaving money on the table. So you're, you're back there at the beginning. Nobody knows who you are yet. Um, yep. Who are the first people that really bite? And yeah. And then on the flip side. What happens when you get a door slammed in your face? Like that must have happened a few times too. Yeah. Well, so the you know the dream of the company uh, has always been to help people manage their forests better with better data. You know that's what it says on our website: better data, better decisions. That's that's always been the dream. And you know people use forests for all sorts of things. There's the investment people that are trying to manage it as an investment and try to maximize the amount of volume that they can cut down each harvest rotation. There's uh, you know conservation groups that really want to have you know puma habitat that they want to optimize for. 
Um, you know, or there's a small landowner who says, you know, my kid's going to go to college in 18 years, and I want to make sure that uh, we're going to be able to do a harvest and and cut the um, the trees down uh, to pay for their college. Uh, we found originally uh, that our our most receptive clients were actually the institutional investor people, you know, because okay. they are they're explicitly managing this as an investment. Um, and so that that's who we started with, you know. So that's you know people like uh, Hancock and yeah. uh, you know people like that that just own millions of acres in the United States and are constantly trying to do a better job of, that's of managing it. How do you get in the door there? Like I would have thought, ah, a little landowner, you might at least be able to have a conversation. But if you're going to go talk to one of the, you know, the hedge fund type places, that's going to be harder. Oh yeah, well you know it's not really. I, I suppose there's probably some hedge funds that that. Um, own forests, but mostly in the United States, it's timber investment management okay. organizations and real estate investment trusts, so TMOs and REITs. Yeah, and, and like those, okay. those guys are all foresters. And actually, that's one of the things I really like about forestry is that uh, there's a lot of really great people in forestry, you know, and the trees aren't going anywhere. And they're usually happy to take your call and, and talk with you. And, you know, it might take it might take people a long time. And actually, that's one of the biggest lessons that we've learned is, you know, how, how to sort of de-risk this from an individual client's perspective. You know, how do you make it not scary for them to try to use new technology? Uh, so it might take them a while because they tend to be risk averse and a little more conservative. Uh, but they're, you know, there's, there's very few mean people in forestry. So is this where your pilot programs come in to, to just try to ease them in? You have somebody who has 100,000 acres. You're like, we'll take a look at this 100 over here. Yep, exactly. And, and you get them, you get them to buy in. Now, you you shared with me a paper about kind of what you do. Yep. Uh, that made it look deceptively easy. So I'm sure there's a lot of stuff right. hidden under the hood. But what's the hard part? Like why yeah. why aren't tons of people doing this? When you went to approach these people, were you the first people to approach them and say, "Look, you you can do this a lot more cheaply and get better results." Yeah. Well, so that you know, re- accurate re- remote sensing of forests has been sort of the holy grail of you know forestry remote sensing for a long time and and a lot of people have raised you know tens of millions of dollars in venture capital trying to do this actually and and generally the approach people take is to get really high resolution imagery or like lidar images mm-hmm. and try to segment out individual trees because you know if if i tell you your job is to count all the trees in the forest then you say oh well you know as a human i can sort of eyeball that yeah. and see what's going on and maybe if i you know can train a computer to do that that's the way um, and and the trouble with that is that Forests are really messy, and they're just really complicated, and it's really tough to say, you know, oh, is that one tree, or is that two trees close together? Is that a tree that's got a fork in it with two different crowns? And so there's lots of, uh, you know, it, they're just really complicated and messy, and the approach we take is is much more of sort of a statistical sampling approach, and so you don't have to worry about, you know, trying to do super accurate computer vision or anything. There's pretty well-established statistics behind all of this. The The trick tends to be, and how do you wrangle all this data into one place? You know, we're not just using a single image. Um, the, the way I, the sort of uh, high level view that I tell people sometimes is, you know, if you have a satellite image and there's 40 different shades of green in it, you know, we match those up with the field measurements and then we say, oh, well, here's an area we haven't measured, but it's this shade of green and we measured that shade of green over here. So it's probably roughly those same sizes and species of trees. You know, but that's super simplified. Actually, we're, we've got a big stack of imagery from the spring and the fall when the leaves are changing color and elevation and aspect and all these things that uh, that are sort of characteristics of sight that will influence what's going on there. Okay. So, so that's yeah. part of the ball hiding that you did. 
in that article. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and you know, so yeah. that's, that was actually from the, uh, the forestry source. And actually, this is one of the things that I'm really proud of is that we're trying to, to give back and to the, the forestry community. And we write this, this, uh, I guess it's every other month we have a, a article about biometrics, which is essentially just data science and forestry that we write for the national forestry newspaper. And, uh, that, that's just been really fun to sort of stimulate that conversation and, and help you know an entire profession say how can we think about these problems more quantitatively, you know what's actually the value of this data and and actually have a very math centric uh, conversation in in an industry that you might not you know initially think is yeah uh, so did heavy. you did you get pushback from like old hands in the forestry industry kind of like Michael Lewis documented when he writes about Moneyball from the old scouts <laughs> right. you know the scouts are like oh his arm angle is wrong. But you look at the numbers, and he's actually a pretty good pitcher. Did you have any pushback like that from people in the in the forestry industry? Oh, sure. You know, I mean, and and part of the problem is, right? You know, people have been trying to do this for a long time, and there have been a lot of people that have sort of overpromised and underdelivered on this stuff. And that, you know, so one of the nice things about Sylvia Terra is, you know, we we won that initial business plan competition, and we raised like a little bit of money, you know, but it wasn't venture capital dollars. It was all from you know basically people that knew the timber investing world really well. And so we've been able to grow sort of really organically and make sure we were doing the right thing all the all the way along. And, you know, and, and people are skeptical and, and rightly so. You know, we, we come along and we say, you know, hey, we're able to use a bunch of technology and math to do this a lot more efficiently. And people say, well, I've heard that story before. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know? So were, uh, were you wholly bootstrapped all the way along? Well, you know, well, we, we did raise a little bit of money. But, yeah, I mean, it's essentially been a very sort of bootstrap style model. So. Okay. Uh, so ha have you been able to get people to move a little bit? Oh, yeah. Like yeah. I mean, we moving? yeah. Yeah. We're, we're doing we work with uh, nearly every top Timo and REIT in, in the U.S. at this point. Uh, and, you know, we're starting to do some international stuff. But, um, yeah, you know, and it's taken a long time. I mean, we're nine years in when, when we started this company. You know, I, I thought, you know, hey, this is this is a perfect business. You know, back when I was 19 years old when we yeah. were starting this, I'm like, we give people better data for less money. You know, like a straw into gold. I like gold. You like gold. This is easy. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, and what I hadn't taken into into account is, you know, that when, when you're a, a forest manager, you know, if, if you choose to go with some technology that doesn't end up working out, then, you know, maybe you're out of a job. And, and that's a scary thing for people. And so a, a big change we've made over over the course of doing this company is trying to develop ways to make it uh, much easier and less risky for people to to get started was there a point early on where you're like uh-oh this isn't gonna work like, did you did you hit that point where like when you're coming out of college was there any thought of uh well so i've i've always believed the math uh when i didn't have to believe the math right because like you could you could see it you know and, and you 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 know like uh, that article i sent you about model assisted sampling like the statistics is is rock solid on how all this stuff works the big question has always been you know it, it's and, and this is something actually in, in my life generally that's been a little bit of a surprise. I always thought the math was going to be the hard thing, you know, because math, math can get real hard real fast. But it actually turns out in the real world, like, mo you know, no one's doing this like super high level math or anything. It's like, you know, like math that you could learn at the undergraduate or early graduate level in, in university. Uh, but then the tough part is the people part and and trying to make that process work and that's always been the big question for us is it's never been a can we build this technically it's been a can we sell this to people and structure our projects in a way that it's clear whether or not it's successful and that we can move forward so is that where you're spending most of your time like what did you do yesterday <laughs> well so uh 
I, I can't I can't give out too many details, but we've basically got uh, up until now all of our work has been on a project by project basis, mm -hmm. where we do work for you know big concentrated landowners in an area. But part of the dream, you know, like for me, mission success at Sylvia Terra is can we get an invent a good inventory for every acre of forest in the United States that that that's then used to inform a quantitative forest management plan, you know, for whatever people's objectives are, you know, but to do things like you know can we monitor uh, you know, maybe you care about cougar habitat. Like, mm -hmm. is the U.S. getting more or less cougar habitat over time? Are there ways that we can incentivize people to to change their management in a way that improves cougar habitat? And can we monitor that? You know, like carbon markets are a big thing that people are talking about right now. And a big part of the problem is it's so tough to measure and monitor what's going on that it's tough for people to have trust in, in a market like that. And so that that's where uh, I'm really excited if we can scale up, you know, instead of doing this all on a project by project basis, but to be able to do it at, you know, a country level and, and have pretty constant updates of that. How can we use that information to inform the things we actually care about? Because nobody actually cares how many trees are out there. They care about kids going to college or wildlife habitat or carbon storage or, uh, you know, all these other ecosystem services. So is government a target for you? Uh, potentially one day, you know, I mean, the, when, when we started, we actually decided pretty early on that we were not going to do any government stuff in the first couple of years because we needed the dollars now. And, you know, so, <laughs> yeah. so uh, but, you know, it, as we've grown and as, as we've sort of established uh, uh, a good name in the industry and as, as we have more stability, it's been something that we've, we've started looking into. In the U.S., it's, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff is pretty fragmented by state. Uh, when okay. it comes to State Department of Natural Resources yeah. and stuff like that. So it's not quite as much of a home run as you would think. But we've actually, you know, we're, we're doing uh, some some inventory projects abroad for national governments. Yeah. Uh, and that's been interesting. Yeah, we've started opening um, learning centers. And we're now in six different states. And we're learning about the dark side of federalism. So <laughs> right. it's a good thing to having lots of experiments. But, wow, all the regulations are completely different everywhere you go. Um, so what did you do yesterday? Uh, What's your well, job? Well, I, I'll tell you, yesterday, we, um, I actually was doing some math yesterday, which is a little bit un, unusual for me, you know, a lot of the time now. So, you know, when we started, it was just me and Zach. And like I said, you know, he was sort of the sales and statistics guy. And then I was the troll under the bridge, cranking the handle, making sure all our technical infrastructure was up and that we could take the thing that, you know, yeah. doing 10 acres on his laptop in a day, you know, now we did all of California running on, you know, 10,000 computers up in Amazon, you know, in a couple hours, yeah. you know, and so I, I built a lot of that original infrastructure, but, you know, now we're a team of eight people. We've got, you know, PhD level statistician, biometrician people that are, are working on our team that handle a lot of the statistics side of the projects. We, we hired our uh, chief technology officer, uh, who's a, a guy that you're under me at Yale about a year ago. Uh, and so he's taken over a lot of that. And so a big part of, of my job now is trying to figure out what are the, the, big, uh, the big opportunities, you know, things like ecosystem services, things like, um, you know, getting every landowner in the United States, good information about their forests, things like that. And, and again, this sort of de-risking, you know, it's like, if that's the ultimate dream, what is the campaign of steps along the way where we can be profitable every step of that way, uh, proving out that people actually care and are willing to pay for this type of thing? Uh, so that that's generally what I spend my time thinking about these days or, you know, going out and meeting with people and uh, speaking at conferences and things like that. But I was excited yesterday because I actually was doing some math. We're, we're doing some optimization stuff. And I actually busted out some of the calculus that Albert was teaching me back at Taco Hut back in the yeah, day. And, great. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so how much do you actually get to spend a lot of time strategizing and you're not having to deal with like little micro 
stuff that comes up? Uh, I, I've had a lot more opportunity to do that in the last two or three years. You know, in, in the beginning of Sylvia Terra, when it was just me and Zach, we, I think actually for the first three years of Sylvia Terra, I don't know if there was any time that had both of us asleep at the same time. I mean, it was it was brutal. You know, wow. it was just around the clock, uh, working to get projects out to build mm -hmm. the initial uh, technology and all that stuff. Uh, and it was crazy. And the switching cost when you're multitasking is, yes. is something that I think a lot of people don't think about when you're trying to bootstrap a company. It's like, yeah, like in theory, you should be able to do all these things. But when you have to switch between things all day long, it, it makes it really tough, especially for doing you know, math or any sort of programming thing where you really need to get in the zone. Um, yeah. I think people underestimate. Uh, there are a lot of people who believe they're really good multitaskers, and they're not. Yeah, no, no one's good at multitasking. Yeah. Yeah, they're, so. they're, they're really not. So I, I wanted to ask a bit about the, the environmental groups. You've mentioned, you mentioned various environmental causes. Do they view you as a friend or a foe? I could, I could imagine some of them being a little bit skeptical about, oh, you're going to make this forestry stuff easier? Um, no, I mean, I, I think it's, I, yeah, I think it's generally as a friend. I mean, the, the reality is everybody understands that their inventory data is not as good as it could be. You know, everybody's taking a statistical sample out there. A lot, a lot of these confidence intervals are really wide. When you're making decisions about, you know, thousands or tens of thousands or millions of acres, I mean, that, that really matters. And the nice thing about our business is uh, we, we give people better data. And for any type of decision that you're trying to make, having better data is going to help you make better decisions. You know, and, and so it's like, you know, maybe a timber company is trying to optimize for, um, you, know, cut, you know, for harvest at some point, whereas maybe a conservation group would prefer to move a, you know, a forest more towards better habitat mm -hmm. for a certain owl species or something. And, and that's something that you know, we, we provide the tools to analyze those decisions, but that's not something that, you know, in, and in my view, I'm, I'm you know, sort of uh, hands off in this regard. You know, it's like we we want to just give people the tools to make better decisions, whatever right. those decisions are. So. so you mentioned that you've been at this for nine years. What have been yeah. the big surprises and how has your perspective kind of morphed during that time? Yeah. Well, you know, when, when I started, um, you know, I that was freshman year after college. You know, I, I thought I was some, some hotshot guy, you know, I'd survived all these summers at nerd camp. And, uh, I was like, man, this, you know, startups are easy. Like we're going to, we're going to do this thing. It totally makes sense. Like the math checks out, you know, like by the time I graduate, we're just going to be, you know, Scrooge McDucking it in bathtubs <laughs> full of money. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And we'll have counted all the trees in the U S and, and what I hadn't counted on is, you know, it's, it's not actually that anything is that hard. You know, I, I would say there's very few things in in doing Sylvia Terra where, you know, I really have to sit down and, and just like think really hard, like, you know, for a USAMO style problem, which, which I took in high school. I actually got one right. That was like one of my, my proudest math moments is, is I got a USAMO question right. The uh, But it's that nothing is hard. It's just that the easy things are hard. You know, and and managing all these things all at once, and trying to keep everything moving while not running out of money, and you know, trying to make sure you're doing a good job with your clients, and make sure everybody on the team feels like you know they have what they need, and you know, there's just a, a lot of moving parts, and um, and that's largely you, your job. Yeah, yeah, I, I sort of joke that I'm I'm the the firefighter, the plumber. You know, I mean, my, my job's you know, everybody else in the company tends to have a pretty well-focused, you know, it's like, oh, you're focused on running the projects or you're focused on building the technical infrastructure, or you're focused on doing the sales. And a lot of what I think about is what's on fire and what's about to be on fire and how do we avoid that? And, you know, wh where do we need to be aiming at so that we sort of 
pull our heads up and, you know, instead of looking at what's immediately in front of us, what do we need to be thinking about a year or two, you know, three years down the road? That's your preferred role too? Well, I don't know. I mean, like I, I, I honestly don't even know what I want anymore. You know, I've been, I've been in this nine years and my, my mission is to make this thing a success and make sure that we, we help people manage their forests better in the United States. And, you know, whatever I need to do to do that, that's, that's what I'm doing. How will you know you've uh, won, for want of a better word? <laughs> right. You're, you're 10 years out from now, and what does it look like if it worked? Uh, well, you know, like I said, you know, our, our dream is an inventory for every acre of forest in the United States. And, you know, for us, inventory has always been step one. You know, it's, if you want to do anything else, though, you got to have good inventory. Otherwise, it's just garbage in, garbage out. You know, we want to be helping people make decisions. You know, the Nature Conservancy is trying to figure out, you know, well, what what land should we acquire? Or how, how do we incentivize landowners to sequester more carbon on their property? Or how do we do that? You know, all those decisions depend on having good data and it just does not exist right now. There's no baseline, there's no economical way to like on, you know, monitor these things in an ongoing way. Right. And so I, I think we've got um, uh, a really nice opportunity to, to do that. To de-risk and, a whole lot of decisions. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Awesome. So what else do you do when you're not Right. When you're not, because you're not working 18 hours a day anymore. No, not, not, not anymore. Although, you know, I'm, I'm working most nights and, and weekends. And so, I mean, it's Still. like, there's, there's a lot of trees left to count. Yeah. <laughs> so it, keep, it keeps us busy. But, uh, you know, I mean, honestly, besides Sylvia Terra stuff, uh, you know, that's, that's a lot of my life right now. Although I am a, a, a fanatical reader. I, I read probably a, a hundred books a year. Yeah, I've and, seen your uh, book reviews. How do you find time to do that? Well, I mean, people always ask me that, and it's not like I find time or anything. It's I, I don't actually, I have no dedicated reading time. It's just I, I have no downtime. You know, like when I was making lunch this afternoon, I got my audio book going, or when I'm on a train, I'm reading a book. Or I'm actually you know, wondering how you find time to write the reviews. Like, yeah, I read yeah. a lot, and I used to write reviews, and I stopped because it just took so much. It yeah. was great because then I could actually remember the books. You know, exactly. I'm thinking, oh, what was that book about? I'll go look at the review I wrote. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sort of. But that was 10 years ago. I just yeah. like, I can't do this anymore. It takes yeah. too much well, time. It, it, is, it is tough to, to find the time to make the review. You know, and I'm behind all my reviews yeah. right now. But, uh, you know, people and people always ask me, they're like, why do you even write all these reviews? You know, and part of it, I actually started doing it because my college roommate, and I would always get in debates and I would always be like, oh, on this book, he's like, that's just an argument by authority. Like, what's your actual fact? Now I can actually look him up. But I've also found and, and like nobody, nobody does this, but I have a 100 percent hit rate for getting meetings with anybody I want to. And what you do is you send them an email that says, you know, hey, you know, so and so you're like some big fancy person. You know, I'm, I'm Max. Uh, I read 100 books a year. Just read this book that I thought you might be interested in. Talks about X. Here's my review. Would love to meet up with you and talk about it over coffee or something. I have a 100% hit rate. Like, nobody does this because it's a little weird. I also have no shame. So I, I feel How no. How did you even think to do that? I, like, you know, just no shame and like wanting to, you know, get in touch with people and talk about things. And, uh, you know, I yeah. read a lot. So wow. not, not, fearing, not fearing no is a gift. It really <laughs> right. is. So uh, two things that you've, you've mentioned about when you're starting a company that sounded like were really important for you. One was the irrational exuberance of thinking, ah, oh, this is going to be easy. We're going to be there in two right. years. And the other is the amount of work that you put in then and still to, to some extent now. Could you have gotten by without either one of those? Um, you, I definitely could not have gotten here without the work. I mean, like you just have to put in the work. And then, I mean, that's one of the things actually that I, I like about, uh, 
you know, running a company and, and trying to do all this is, you know, not only do you have to do all this problem solving and stuff all the time, it's that you don't know if the solution exists. You know, I mean, at least with USAMO, like, you know, the solution exists. And, and the other thing is, uh, you know, it's all on you, you know, and, and like now that that's uh, like, we've, we've got a great team behind us now and stuff. But in the early days, you know, it was me and Zach and it's, if we did not do it, it was not going to get done. And so that, that's a lot of responsibility, but it also, yeah, it makes you feel alive, you know, I mean, you're, you're doing it. It's, it's your baby. And so you gotta, gotta make it happen. I, like if, if I had known that it was going to, you know, take five times longer than I thought would I have still have done it? Like, I don't know, maybe, I mean, to me, you know, it's like there, there's plenty of ways to make money in the world and do that. You know, what, what's exciting to me about Sylvia Terra is I think we actually really have an opportunity to change the way an entire field works, you know, and, it, and it's not like some little nothing thing, you know, it's like two thirds of the land surface of the earth is covered with trees and, you know, people do an okay job of managing it right now, but I think there's just so much room for growth and improvement uh, and, and bringing quantitative rigor to that. And that, that's super exciting to me. And so you must have competition then. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I, you know, people have been trying to do this for a long time and it's just tough, you know, cause the, the technology side of it's hard, the selling side of it's hard, you know, there's actually yeah. not that much money in forestry, you know, compared to things like oil and gas and even agriculture. Right. So, it, you know, it, it's sort of a weird industry. Um, yeah, and we. So you know, you're saying our, it's it's niche, kind of like high end yeah. math education. <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. Um, you know, and I mean, you know, there are certainly people that that try to do what we do, and and um, you know, it, it, we we keep an eye on that, but our our focus is is really just on trying to, like I said, it, get an inventory for every acre of the U.S. and and help people make better decisions. So, I mean, for what it's worth, when we were nine years in at Art of Problem Solving, we were probably slightly larger than you are, but not much in terms of headcount. And so now we're at 15 years. We've probably got 60-odd full-time people and a few hundred part-time. So, yeah. you know, it can change very quickly. Yeah, uh, well, as you, you know, well but, know. But, yeah, but I mean, my, my philosophy on this, there's a great uh, biography, uh, a book, actually, you know, from, from, from all my reading, the, uh, mm -hmm. the same guy that wrote the Hamilton biography, Ron Chernow, who's a, yep. I think he's a Yale guy. But he wrote a, a an equally good biography about Rockefeller. Okay. And and one of the things that Rockefeller would always say when he was doing Standard Oil is he says the perfect Standard Oil man is a guy who comes in, you know, has some job that he's assigned to. He figures out essentially how to structure his job in such a way that he can hire somebody else or you know yeah. descale it or automate it or make it obsolete. And then he moves on to doing something more, uh, yeah. you know, higher value. And that's really the the philosophy that we try to take in in Soviet Terra's. You know, we, we are a team of you know eight people, and we're working on counting every tree in the United States, which is yeah. something that like you couldn't even conceive of doing before. But it's you know just because we've been able to automate so much of our process um, that yeah, that's that's yeah. sort of the the dream. So, what would you suggest to students who want to follow in your footsteps? Maybe not building a forestry company, yeah. but starting a company in an area they're super passionate about not waiting until they get out of school and going and fighting the VC battle, but yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I mean, step one is learn to code. I think, I mean, that's yeah, the language for everything. And there's plenty of resources, um, you know, like Python, you know, just Google how to learn Python, you know, and you're, you'll be well on your way. But the, the second thing, and the thing that I think a lot of people don't get is like, like I said at the beginning, the only thing that's real is dollars. Yeah. You know? And so if, you know, especially for, 
people just starting out that are, you know, middle school or high school or, or anything, you know, it's like you have no business trying to like do something that's going to require like a million dollar investment or something. It's like you need to get somebody to give you 50 bucks, you know, and, and your first startup is going to be hard enough without trying to like do all this other stuff. It's like you don't even know if you can sell. But if if you don't have an idea where two weeks from now you can go out and make your first sale, you know, and it doesn't have to be like what your ultimate vision is, but it needs to be you know, somehow, you know, capturing some portion of that ultimate value proposition that you're trying to deliver. You know, if you can't sell that, then, you know, maybe you need to come up with a different idea or think about something else. You know, that's, that's the real test, but you can find out in two weeks and, you know, nobody does this, but you can know in two weeks whether or not you're on the right path. Interesting. I don't think I've heard that, that as a, uh, you know, a little germ of advice for someone who's trying to, to start something particularly young. Yeah. That's well, yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, like when, when you're older and you have more resources and you can fool yeah. VCs into giving you lots of money, like maybe there are different rules that apply. But, you know, if you're a, a you know, middle high school or college kid, yeah, yeah, I'd say if you can't get market validation in two weeks, yeah, try something else. Yeah. Interesting. So in closing, I'm going to give you the floor uh, to let people know where they can find out more about Sylvia Terra and hear more, hear more from you, check out your book reviews. <laughs> sure. We'll put up yeah. a link to that in the, uh, the show notes as well. But the floor is yours. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, for, for me, the the one message that I really wanted to leave this podcast with is that the same stuff that I learned in math counts and, and math path. And, you know, I, I had a copy of the Art of Problem Solving books in my basement growing up. You know, I spent I spent days looking at those. You know, the first one was was pretty straightforward. And then the second one, you know, was a took me a lot longer a to get harder. through it. But the, uh, you know, it's all those same school skills of, of framing a problem, breaking it down into smaller things, like thinking analytically about this stuff. I mean, that's what I do every single day still. Yeah, and like people ask me what I learned at, at Yale and stuff. It's like the stuff that I learned or the, the stuff that I use every single day is the stuff that I learned back in math counts, you know, back in middle school. Yeah, so is, true. Is how to approach these problems, take them from different perspectives, you know, how to work smarter about things rather than trying to just brute force them. And, um, yeah, I mean, that, that's made a huge, huge difference in, in my life at least. And, um, yeah. And, uh, you know, as far as Sylvia Terra stuff goes, I mean, yeah, I'm not sure how many people actually care about, uh, forestry stuff, but we, we write about some of the math that we use, uh, on our blog, which is, you know, just blog.sylviaterra.com. And then, uh, my book reviews, you'll, you'll post the link for that, I guess, but uh, I'm always looking for a good book rec. So, okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll dig up some for you. Uh, although you've probably read them all. I just actually finished one of the other, uh, Turnell books on, on Grant. That okay. Was, yeah, 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 that's on my list. That was that was a good one, um, and now I'm reading through the high growth handbook to try to. Oh uh, yeah. You know, how, yeah. How are we gonna How are we gonna get through that next stage? But um, thank you very much for your time. Uh, this is this has been a lot of fun. My guest today has been Max Nolan. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Aftermath. You can find show notes for this and other episodes on our website at aops.com/aftermath. We want more people to discover this podcast, so if you like this episode, please take a moment to share it with others you think will enjoy it. Then head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. I'm Richard Rusick. See you next time. Aftermath is brought to you by Art of Problem Solving, through which we've had the opportunity to work with hundreds of thousands of eager math students around the world. Our textbooks, online school, in-person learning centers, and various online resources empower students to develop the skills they'll need for success at top-tier universities and in internationally competitive careers. Come check us out at aops.com.